You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokolo, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Lauren Swartz, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you, Laura. Can you give us a quick overview? What's the World Affairs Council? Absolutely. The World Affairs Council is a private nonprofit organization based in Philadelphia, We've been around for over 70 years, and we always have been providing connection for Philadelphia to the world and for the world to connect back to Philadelphia. We do that through four pillars of programming. We bring in world-class speakers and thought leaders and activists, politicians and famous people to connect to Philadelphia and tell us what's going on in the world, where we can have nonpartisan and civil discourse on the issues of today. We also are the world affairs education provider to 2,500 students across 85 schools. And we offer an educational travel program, bringing Philadelphians and people from around the country to all seven continents every year. And people are very excited to join us again when we're allowed to travel and take vacations. And lastly, we have a Global Leadership Institute, which trains young professionals and leaders to become globally fluent professionals so that they are ready to take on the globally connected jobs of the future. That all sounds like so much fun. And I just think back to my high school self, and if I could have participated in like all of it. I would have been right there knocking on the door, trying to be the first one to submit my application for all those programs. And actually now the travel sounds like a lot of fun. So I may be calling you back relatively soon when we can start having those, uh, well, we can have those trips again. That's a nice thing to look forward to, isn't it? Agreed. Yes. I can't wait to get on a plane and go visit friends and family around the country and around the world and take a vacation and get out of these four walls we've all been trapped in for the past year. Yeah, yeah. Going up and down the stairs is not really a vacation. It doesn't quite count. (laughs) No, it does count as exercise in the pandemic, I found. It does. I I will give it that. So, And I also love the notion of nonpartisan and civil discourse. Isn't that an interesting concept in today's world? Yes, we were doing it before it was in fashion and high demand. And as conversations in the public sphere and media ebb and flow, the council has always made sure to be nonpartisan, or sometimes it's bipartisan or intrapartisan, depending on how you want to split hairs, to make sure that if we offer a certain perspective or political view, that we offer the opposing one as well and let our audience members ask questions and become more informed so they can make, make up their own mind. Making up their own minds and giving bipartisan both sides of any particular issue. I think that's also something that hopefully the rest of us will be able to tune into on a more regular basis because heaven knows we need some leadership in how to do that. So without getting too far off the track on that particular topic, what are your main job responsibilities and who do you need to influence? My main job responsibilities are to lead the World Affairs Council and help write the future chapters of the organization. Like all organizations, everything is up for grabs. How we deliver programming, how we connect to people, what our message and our meaning is in this virtual world has really shifted. 
And so as a new leader of the organization, I've been in the job only five months. I'm excited to help draft the strategy and lead us into our next 70 years. And to do that, I need to influence the community to make sure that they see that the World Affairs Council is the place to go to connect internationally and to get that nonpartisan civil discourse that people are really missing and hungry for. And if they think, I'd like to go on a trip, but maybe not just a trip, to learn something, or I want to make sure that my kids get some world affairs education because it's not in public schools anymore, or I want my staff to be prepared better prepared to work with people from different cultures. May that be in our offices here in the Philadelphia region or with a new client that you have halfway around the world. I want people to think that the World Affairs Council and to know that the World Affairs Council is there to help them in every step of the way. So becoming more present in people's minds and positioning ourselves as the thought leader on international engagement for the region is why I say we need to make sure that the community is influenced by the communication that our organization puts out. And what's the biggest challenge to doing all of that? Right now, the biggest challenge is to be clear and concise and consistent to communicate above the noise. It's this paradox we're operating in where many people are very lonely and isolated, but at the same time, it's so noisy. There's so much communication, whether it's Netflix and all of the other streaming services constantly giving you entertainment, all of the news sites, all of the texts, all of the Zooms. It's this paradox of feeling lonely and maybe uninformed or like you're missing something yet constantly being communicated to. And so for a small organization like ours, we need to be extremely precise and clear about what our offer is and how it can help people achieve their goals and rise above all of this chaos. So then in order to do that, what specific communication skills did you have to develop in order to get to where you are now and be successful there? Because you've only been in this position a relatively short amount of time. And where you're transitioning from, I would imagine that there's a bit of a culture difference. For sure. One of the most important communication skills that served me throughout my career when I've worked abroad or Philadelphia or different places is what I call code switching. The ability to talk to people at all different levels with different cultural backgrounds, different facility or concern about the English language, or when I'm speaking and trying to speak a different language, which now I've become quite rusty at, being able to speed up or slow down your communication, choose different words for the audience that you're trying to reach so that they feel comfortable and that your message gets across. Can you give us, and I alluded to it a moment ago, but uh, give everybody a sense of how long have you been in the role now? Five months. Five months. Okay. So we're still uh, getting the dust off of the the new furniture and and getting all set to go. Where did you come in from? Previously, I was with the city of Philadelphia for five years where I led all of the city's international engagement. I led our foreign direct investment strategy, international trade strategy, diplomatic relations, foreign affairs, different policy positions that the city would be asked to take on international issues. I handled all of our international guests, visitors, may they be businesses, foreign delegations, ambassadors, heads of state coming through the city and helping them connect, whether it was through political leadership or into the business community or intercultural communities within our region. All of that was under my purview at the city for five years. What would you say is the biggest difference or a biggest learning curve, as it were, between going from running that very important section of a city government to now being at the head of a of an independent organization, a standalone organization? I believe that government is there to serve, to serve the community, to serve their constituents, and to serve the city, in, in this case, the city at large. 
And so working in that role for five years, I was extremely service oriented, which required us to be reactive in many ways. We have 160 different business delegations come to Philadelphia from over 50 different countries every year. We didn't get to pick them. You can't really say no very easily, (laughs) especially when people from around the world are knocking on your door. Might they be from Uruguay or Sweden or Singapore or wherever? And they say, we'd like to come to Philadelphia and meet you and travel halfway around the globe to have five minutes with your mayor or meet with city council or go visit some of the large corporations? And the answer is, yes, please. Thank you for coming. Mm. So it was because of that service orientation and just the way things work in government and particularly this realm of government relations, I had to be very reactive and responsive and meet people where they were and say, yes, please come. Even if we already had 10 groups coming at the same time, whereas now leading a smaller organization, there's a much larger, more clear opportunity to be strategic and to be proactive. And that's not to disparage government at all. Government must react to what is happening in society and serve. And when you are running your own organization, you have to lead. You have to figure out what your strategy is and identify what gaps in the community you'd like to tackle, serve, or address, and make sure that you have the funding and support to do so. And that requires a very different approach of being proactive and strategic. I would imagine that there was probably a combination of just excitement and woohoo, I finally get to be in charge, as well as terror, like, oh my gosh, I'm in charge. (laughs) What do I do? Yes, you've got to make your own magic, much more when you're leading a small nonprofit organization. But I do find it quite refreshing. I have a wonderful team that's been in place for a long time. The organization has a 70-year legacy. I haven't done the exact research, but I think we're the largest in terms of finances and staff, internationally oriented nonprofit in the region. And so we have this beautiful set of assets. And of course, it can be a little intimidating to come in and look at them and say, okay, great, what do we do now? But I find that very exciting. And my work at the city where I was able to interact with people at all levels from all over the world with many different objectives made me hungry for the opportunity to Mm. get to be a proactive and strategic leader rather than much more on the side of the continuum of being reactive and service oriented. And I'm guessing that in making this leap, then there was a bit of a learning curve. And what was a mistake that you made along the way? Well, I'm sure there are many, some of which have not come to light yet. One of the challenges of changing jobs in the pandemic is that you can't see all of the sides of an issue or all of the sides of a team. Mm. So I'm sure that I've made mistakes, but I don't know that I'm finding them as quickly as I might because we're not all working together and bumping up against each other. In some ways, there's less friction. So I'll say that I'm sure I've made more mistakes than I'm aware of. And if my team is listening, I hope they come and tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even if it's not necessarily a material mistake, with regard to communication, is there anything as far as messaging is concerned or approaching different constituency groups at some point that you realized either midstream, you know what, I should have approached that differently. Let me change gears now or after the fact, wishing you could have had a do-over. I wish that I put people together in smaller groups more often, whether it was my board members or students that we serve or travelers. When we're operating in this world of Zoom, we tend to rely on these one-on-one conversations. So you go very deep, but it's an individual and structured conversation. So you get a good sense of one person, but it's a very controlled experience. And I thought, let's do that so I can build relationships. 
I wish that in my first 90 days, when I was getting to know folks, that I had also asked my staff to meet in groups of three or four with me and had them been able to watch them interact with each other and perhaps done the same thing with some of our board members and, and some of our members of the World Affairs Council at large to get a sense of the community and the group that we have and the culture that has been built for a long time, which is really hard to do virtually. And it's much harder to do, impossible to do in a one-on-one video call type of setting. Sure, sure. Putting a lot more pieces together when you're blindfolded is, I would imagine, challenging to say the least. Yes, indeed. What's the next goal then for you and or for the organization at large? And what communication skills will you need to continue to develop to achieve it? The next goal, I would say, for the World Affairs Council is there's some baseline operational goals that I think every organization is facing, how to continue to operate well in a virtual environment, anticipating and hoping that it changes soon, but not knowing if or when it will. So I'll leave that to the side because I think every organization is facing that. And I would say for us, it's brand building and reputation building to let people know what we're doing, invite them in and make sure that everyone feels comfortable participating and accessing world affairs through what our council offers. And the skills that I and my team need to do that are digital and virtual communication skills. Even when the pandemic is over, which it's questionable whether we'll ever get there. I don't think so myself. I hope so, but I'm not optimistic. We will still be communicating virtually. There will be people who just never want to come downtown for a meeting again and where they will only come to the office once a week. And so we will have to find ways to continue to build relationships, create impact and to create affinity and loyalty for what we do in a virtual setting that isn't happening in a crisis. I think there've been a lot of opportunities to build affinity and relationships because we've been in a crisis. We've all had this common thing to talk about. Oh, are your kids in school? Do you know anyone who's had COVID? But when that all fades away and then it's just, we'll be stuck with all of these additional modes of communication and working together, mastering those and figuring out when to push and pull into different channels of communication I think is one of the biggest challenges facing our organization. I would imagine it's something that's shared by just about everybody nowadays. It's just even Mm -hmm. hard for me and my team, and we're much smaller at that point. So I completely appreciate those unique challenges. And I'm somebody who needs to be with people, even regardless of whether I work from home, whether I'm on the road, I just need to be around the people. So I can't wait personally for this, all these restrictions to be lifted and we can go back to handshakes and hugs and all that kind of fun stuff too. I'll see you at the airport. (laughs) That sounds great. I love it. Ticket in hand. Now, all right, Lauren, this brings us to the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. Given everything we've discussed so far, this is your chance to speak directly to our listeners and to challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours so that they can have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I'd like to challenge our listeners today by recommending that they send someone a card Hmm. or a handwritten note and to make it very short, to find a reason to reach out to someone in what will feel like a quiet way because they don't know what's coming. It's not scheduled. It doesn't matter if you're still wearing your sweatpants and your blazer on top. (laughs) And with the mail, now you never know when it might show up or might not. But to send someone a note that they will receive and be able to hold it in their hands and think of you. And that there's certainly communication because you'll write something, but it's that Maya Angelou quote, people won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And getting a piece of mail 
in your mailbox that isn't a bill or a to-do list. It reminds me of being a child when my grandmother would send me a card and it was the greatest thing. She often included $2 bills. So feel free to do that as well. But send someone a note, just maybe with a sentence, maybe that's something that's really funny. Like you're doing a, you know, a horrible job at pretending you're wearing real pants <laughs> or something like that. Where I look for my board members who are often in the news, you know, being identified as a leader in this particular industry or who've won an award or who have announced that they're acquiring another company. And I just send them a really short handwritten note. Congratulations. This is excellent. I'm proud to be working with you. Put it in the mail, send it off. It really takes about one minute. Right. And it will make it extremely memorable and make someone else's day. I love that. And I think the art of the handwritten note is almost a lost art. It's And it's something we don't think to do. But the fact that you, I appreciate you qualifying that it doesn't have to be a Christmas letter length note, right? It can be literally right. two sentences. It could be anything. And let's throw out a couple of, of examples of other things that it could be, because I think there are people out there listening going, oh my God, what would I write? I don't know. That sounds so personal. I don't know how to get... And they're going to suddenly go on overwhelm from just overthinking it. But it could just be, miss our monthly networking breakfasts. Hope to see you again soon, right? Or just thanks for all your help on X. Appreciate it. Right. And appreciate you. Or I hope you left the house today. Or, you know, <laughs> have you left the house in the past week? Did you get your exercise going up and down the stairs twice or once? You know, you could make jokes about some of the things that people are finding really difficult right now. Sure. And if you're not funny, that's okay, right? You don't right. have to try to be funny. It's just, it, it's an excuse to be if you feel like it. Or for people who have kids and are trying to manage homeschool and things like that, you know, how's fourth grade math going for you? Yes. That could be the only thing that you write and it will make them burst out laughing. And it's, you're also commiserating. Implied in that is empathy. Yes. I don't know. I'm trying to teach my son fourth grade math and I am cheating the whole time by looking up YouTube videos on how to teach whatever it is that's in his workbook next. Right. And so I think there's lots of little things and perhaps the more irreverent they are and empathetic they are, the more impactful they'll be. They don't have to be about work. Yep. Yes. Okay. So you've got your marching orders, everybody. You're going to go. And you can go to CVS and buy a 10-pack of thank you notes for four ninety nine. right? This is, does yep. not have to be super special, personalized, branded, stationary. It can be something plain white card, plain black font in the middle. Thank you. Right. Done. Or it's so do not overthink this. Simple, simple, simple. Remember. Yeah, right. The additional piece of the challenge is don't let it take you more than one minute to write the note. Right. 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 And don't need to go on Amazon to buy this. Next time you go to the grocery store, add it to the list. Keep it simple. I love it. And such a nice personal touch to it. All right. Then this brings us to talking about how you lead your new team. What's your definition of executive presence? When you think about that leadership presence, that command presence, what does it mean to you? How do you recognize it in somebody else? I recognize it by looking not at the speaker, but at the other listeners or the other people in the room or now on the Zoom or Teams or what have you. Someone who is respected and is being heard. You can often look at it, identify someone with executive presence by watching when people put their phones down. Mm. If you're in a large conference and there's a speaker and everybody puts down their phones and sits up straight and looks up because they want to hear what this person has to say. And I think you can tell in virtual meetings when folks are doing their email rather than listening to the speaker. 
And you can look at the volume of the chatter and whether the chat that's going on in the virtual meeting is applicable to the topic or completely unrelated. So I look for somebody who is respected and is heard and is being listened to. And I identify that by not looking at the speaker, but by looking at the other members of the audience. And that is really a key, isn't it? Is that if you can beat the competition for somebody's attention, which is the iPhone is the competition nowadays, that siren song, that temptation that says, there's something more interesting over here. And even if you don't know what it is yet, give it three seconds and you'll find something. You just know it's there. Email, text messages, Facebook updates, sports scores, all that kind of fun stuff. Stocks. Yeah. So if you can beat that, that's a very good sign that you've got something whatever that something is. Now, when you're looking to groom a high potential employee or even to hire somebody externally for a leadership role, what are the most important communication skills that you look for? And on the flip side, what's a red flag that would say, nope, even though they're good at XYZ, uh, this is not going to be a good fit? I look for somebody who listens. At least half of being a good communicator is shutting up and listening to the other person. So someone who talks all of the time and talks over people and doesn't ask questions of their teammates or of their leader, to me, that's a red flag that they will probably have some communication challenges as a leader. And building on that, one way to make sure you have time to be a good listener is to be concise, is to think about what message, not necessarily the words or the facts, but what message you want people to leave that meeting or that conference with and Say it in as short of a way as possible. Use as few words as possible so it cannot get lost. It cannot be misconstrued and it cannot be misunderstood because you've been really concise and then get reactions to it. Those are the things that I look for when I watch people communicate with their peers or communicate with other leaders to see whether I think I'd like to elevate them in a leadership position on my team. I think that's great because it shows both sides of the, is this person able to engage in conversation and in collaboration? Do they contribute effectively and do they receive effectively and meaningfully, mindfully? Because that's what keeps the wheel turning in that productive and constructive way. Right. Because we're not here to work for ourselves as individuals. That's perhaps particularly true at a nonprofit, mission-driven organization, mm. but it's also true in the private sector and government. I've worked in all three. And people who just want to talk to talk aren't serving the end goal of the business, the mission, or what have you. There are times where you have to do that. You need to make sure that's how it's structured. But 90% of communication in the workplace is not that. And so you have to be collaborative and listen to other folks to understand how the machine that you're operating in works and what your place is in it. Yes. Then tell us about a time when someone pitched something to you, either in this job, it could be the last job either way, and the pitch just did not go over well. And you sent them back to the drawing board. What did they do wrong? I remember a time working at the city where a partner organization came in to present an opportunity for collaboration. And it could have been a very small collaboration or a very deep and, and long one that worked across many countries and markets as well. And this woman came in and she had requested a meeting and then sent the meeting request. And it was pretty vague. It said something like meeting with Lauren and the other person's name. That right there starts to turn me off. I need to know what the meeting is about so I can prepare. What is the content? It should have said meeting about, you know, a collaboration proposal between company X and company Y regarding European startups or what have you. 
And so that made me nervous because I couldn't prepare. I couldn't get into the headspace. And then I come to the meeting and this woman makes a presentation that takes up the entire time that we had allotted. We had an hour and she had a like 60 slide deck presentation mm. going. And she kept going through these slides because she was so focused on saying what she wanted to say. And so she didn't have time to ask questions. She didn't have time to get feedback. And it also, it was too much. So it didn't become clear. I didn't know what we were talking about ahead of time because the meeting wasn't well structured or communicated. And then when we were there, there was too much information and not enough breaks to check in and say, are you with me? What questions do you have? What would you like to learn more about next? So the meeting ended and I was annoyed. I felt like it was a waste of my time, which then is never a good way to start to sell something or build a relationship. And maybe it was a good opportunity, but I couldn't get past the communication style to be interested in working with this partner. So it never went anywhere. If you could rewind it, of course, you mentioned what she should have put in the calendar to give you a general sense of where the conversation was going to go, the topic. You could have asked any preemptive questions or whatever you wanted ahead of time. How should she have structured, aside from checking in, which you mentioned, what would have been a better breakdown of that hour? It goes back to teaching. Walk into the room and say, this is what I'm going to tell you. And then you tell me. And at the end, you say, this is what I've told you. Make sure you get that in, especially if the person that you're meeting with knows that you're extremely busy. In this particular job, I would have six to eight meetings a day with different people speaking different languages, different cultures, going around to different offices. So it was exhausting. And if you know the person that you're presenting to has a schedule like that, you have to be crystal clear about I've asked for your time today, Lauren, because I want to tell you about this. My goal is to seek a collaboration that could look one of three ways, which I'll explain in the presentation. I want to take about 20 minutes to explain it to you. Forgive me, I've got a couple of slides to keep me on track. And then I'll make sure that we have time for question and answers because this is a collaboration. And this first discussion should be collaborative. And I look forward to hearing your answers to these three questions that I have for you, list the questions, and whatever else is on your mind. If someone starts a meeting like that, they give me what I should be thinking about, what questions they're going to have for me, tell me how that hour will be spent together, and they're already asking for my feedback and a collaborative approach, it would have gone much differently. That's great. And I really appreciate how you sort of broke that down and and structured it because there are a lot of, we all understand. I like to say that the biggest gap in the world is the three inches between our brains and our mouths. That (laughs) We have this, we understand everything on a conceptual level. We understand what we're supposed to do. We understand the content that we want to share, the ideas that we want to convey. But then there's something about opening your mouth and having a linear sequence of words, very specifically selected words, come out in a way that's going to get us that reaction that we want, that's going to land the way we need them to land. And that seems like it should be perfectly natural, right? If you know what you want to talk about, you know what your points are, you just say them, right? Except that it's not, Mm -hmm. right? So to be able to take that little template of sorts that you gave and plug in pieces and recognize, okay, out of that hour, really, I can only afford 20 minutes for this part. And then I need to work in these and I need to leave at least 10 minutes for X. And I'm going to try to work in some discussion about these things and prepare. 
that helps people to structure their time, I think, so much better, assuming they even have had time to prepare their presentation as much as they did. And it sounds like she put a lot of time mm -hmm. into that particular pitch. It just wasn't appropriately invested time. Right. And I would say that I learned this first working in a different country. And I, I was working in Copenhagen in Denmark. And I knew how to speak Danish. I was much better in a social setting, much better at listening than speaking. And for those of you listening today, and I know, Laura, you speak other languages as well. The first time you have to say something important besides ordering mm -hmm. something at a bakery or a bar in the work setting in a foreign language is terrifying. And to overcome that, you have to really think about what you want to say. And you also probably want to use as few words as possible because it's nerve wracking to be using a different language. And when I first decided to switch to Danish in the workplace, which I never mastered or did very much of because the Danes speak such beautiful English, it was just more efficient and less painful for all of us <laughs> to back to English. But having to get the courage to speak in a foreign language in the workplace required me to be extremely clear about what I wanted to say, to choose my words wisely. And I wanted to shut up and get through it quickly to hear what they had to say, to take a little bit of the pressure off of me as well. And that is definitely something to be empathetic about when you realize that others in your workplace may speak a different language as a native language, no matter how fluent mm -hmm. their English is working with you. There's always just a little more work it takes to put together ideas. And when you think about how hard it is in your native language, in English, to really clearly, efficiently, concisely, accurately, and diplomatically put sentences together, put your ideas together, now add a second language on top of that. No matter how fluent the other person is, it's just one more level mm -hmm. of challenge. So so I'm going to challenge everybody else out there. If you know someone like that, acknowledge them. Here's my 24-hour listener challenge to you is to give them, just reach out and say, it just occurred to me that you're awesome at this and how hard it must be to be awesome at that. And I don't know if you feel frustrated with it or not at some points, but I just want to give you credit for doing something that I probably wouldn't be able to do. Mm -hmm. and, you know, And that will go so far with most people to just feel like, oh, somebody gets it. Thank you. Because right. I do struggle with it and feel nervous about it. And I think you know, most people... Yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll try to be concise. All right, this brings us to the speed round then. And these are just a couple of topics that regularly come up with my coaching clients and in trainings and even speaking engagements where people seem to be stuck in these false binary choices, a lot of myth busting that we need to do sometimes because we have these false ideas about them and, and how they can hold this back or where we need to work on stuff to not feel alone, like we're the only ones who struggle with them. So let me ask you first. With regard to public speaking, love it or hate it? I love it. Can you give everybody out there who perhaps doesn't love it so much one tip for managing nerves and speaking with confidence even when you don't feel it? I've always loved public speaking since I was about 12, which makes me unusual for sure. But I'm I, there with you. I would still get nervous. And I often went to public speaking classes. I did Toastmasters for years, which I'd highly recommend to anyone. And someone told me at one point, you have to rebrand your nerves. Hmm. Your nerves are not fear. Your nerves are excitement. Yes. Tell yourself that. Lie to yourself. <laughs> write it down on a big post-it note or write it on your mirror and lipstick. But say, these feelings I have are not fear. It's because I am excited for the opportunity to present at the board meeting, to speak at this conference. 
to present a new project at the PTA meeting tonight, whatever it is, rebrand it as excitement and know why. I'm excited because the PTA is then going to be able to raise $10,000 to create a new playground. I'm excited because presenting at the board meeting will allow me the opportunity to seek a promotion next year. And that helps anchor and rebrand and trick yourself into managing those feelings that can get the best of us. Yes. And the fact is adrenaline is adrenaline, right? Your body does not know the difference between adrenaline that comes because you're excited versus adrenaline that comes because you're scared or nervous or something else. So why just tell yourself, oh, it's because I'm scared? Just redirect and use that energy more productively, psychologically as well. So I, I love that idea of rebranding your nerves. Everybody rebrand your nerves. I've tried it at the dentist. It doesn't work at the dentist. <laughs> I'm never excited. I haven't figured out how to get excited about that. But in most other settings, it works well. Yeah. Well, you're not public speaking at the dentist. If anything, you're about to have a bunch of cotton shoved into your mouth. So, But when I'm nervous, right, right. right I'm like, I'm trying to rebrand that anxiety of going to the dentist, which is innate in many of us. And I haven't been able to do it. I'm just nervous the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I have absolutely nothing on that one. So anybody out there who is a dentist and has identified effective solutions for your patients, feel free to respond in the comments section on any of these posts. And, and we would absolutely love to hear what you have to suggest. Lauren, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? I am what I would call a reluctant introvert. <laughs> I think of myself as an extrovert. The folks that know me personally and professionally absolutely think of me as an extrovert. When I do all the personality tests or career development tests, I come out as an introvert. And I'm finally starting to accept that I am technically borderline introverted. And it helps me be able to see both sides and be empathetic to people who are introverted and people who are extroverted now that I've come to accept who I am. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with one or the other, but if you're in your brain, you've always thought of yourself one way and the test shows the other. It's just like, really? Am I, is that? And it sounds like you're kind of in the middle. And that's one. That's why I bring this topic up, because I ask the question as if it were a binary, right? As if it were just A or B, introvert or extrovert, because it's how people tend to ask the question, how people tend to identify. I am an introvert. I am an extrovert, black and white. But and any of those tests, what they'll show you is that it is actually a continuum, right? It's a grayscale. So it sounds like you're kind of in the middle with just teetering a little bit towards the introverted side. And that's what I think people need to realize is that it's not that you're supposed to 100% embody personality set A or set B. So you've mentioned a strength. Is there an area for growth if you're in that middle kind of quote unquote ambivert range? I would say for me, I need to respect the fact that part of me is introverted and make sure that I take time to recharge mm. and make sure that I take time to be quiet and to reflect and not accept every invitation to mm. every meeting or organization or party or coffee or dinner, because eventually I can't handle it and I'll, I'll get burnt out and then cancel things, you know, at the last minute to try and cope or when I'm leaving a reception after a work event, if we remember what that was like, <laughs> I leave by myself and I mm. tend to sort of slip out an Irish goodbye, as some folks call it. And then I walk home and that downtime is really productive and recharging for me. It also makes the conversations that I had at that reception or event sink in and find their place in my brain. And if I just keep going from people to people to people, everything sort of washes over me and I can't use it or remember as well as I'd like to, to take action the next day. Finally, let's talk about conflict. 
Nobody likes it, but we all have to deal with it at some point or other. But in our DNA, we're kind of hardwired to go in one direction or the other, to either run away from it and avoid avoid, or to dive in and just address and fix and, and squash right away. What's your natural DNA? My natural DNA is to address the issue. To dive right in. Mm-hmm. And what have you learned about how to do that effectively? The sooner the better. Letting bad things or uncomfortable things become more bad or uncomfortable never works. Things, problems do not really go away on their own in most cases. And in terms of this in leadership, it's important to bring other people in to solving problems. And that's mm. a really good way to test other leaders and delegate to them. Say, we see an issue here, it needs to be addressed. And if that's your tendency and you always do it alone, you can become branded as the problem solver, mm. which means everyone brings their problems to you all of the time and you get dumped on. Oh. So also, if that's your sort of brand or experience at work to ask people, if you bring me a problem, please bring me a solution with it. It might not be the right solution, but it helps the problem solving become more collaborative and it ensures that your strength as a problem solver doesn't become a burden because everybody's looking to you to fix everything all the time. Right, right. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. How can people learn more about you and the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia? Yes, thank you, Laura. The easiest way to find more information about the World Affairs Council is to visit our website, WACPHILA.org. <laughs> and you can, you can connect with us on social media via that website, see all of our upcoming programs, enroll your kids in our education programs, check out our trips, and find ways to become a more globally fluent Philadelphian. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom today. Thank you, Laura. And everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my quick start guide to mastering the three C's, command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.